Coming to DARPA is like grabbing the nose cone of a rocket and holding on for dear life. DARPA is a place where if you don't invent the internet, you only get a B. A DARPA program manager quite literally invents tomorrow. Coming to work every day and being humbled by that. DARPA is not one person or one place. It's a collection of people that are excited about moving technology forward. Hello, and welcome to Voices from DARPA. I'm your host, Tom Shortridge. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Rohit Chandrasekhar, program manager since 2020 in DARPA's Defense Sciences Office. It was a winding road that brought him here, and indeed, this isn't his first experience with the agency, but we'll get into that shortly. Rohit received his bachelor's and master's of science degrees in electrical engineering from the Cooper Union in New York City, and his doctorate in electrical engineering from Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. But your interest in advanced research was kicked off much earlier than that, right? Yeah, so the way I got to this field is rather nonlinear, pun intended, in that my father, when I was growing up, obviously wanted me to go into research. He was an ardent student of physics and even enrolled in a PhD physics program, but due to the standard family pressures of having to earn a living, quit and decided to do a master's and, and quickly find a job. But he decided to live vicariously through me and my sister and ensuring that we got PhDs. And he even got my first Resnick and Halliday physics book and walked me through it and consistently, you know, used to ask me questions. And so it's because of him that I really pursued further studies in physics and focused on electromagnetics. But my passion was actually in the area of biomedicine and looking at ways in which we could image in the body and identify cancers, building and synthesizing contrast agents to image atherosclerotic plaques, for example, and even treating breast cancer. But it quickly became clear that to get better and better at detecting things in the body or to get better and better at imaging within the body, we first needed to understand how to work better with photons. And so I decided to take a step back and focus my PhD on light matter interactions, which is what brought me to the field of metamaterials. So metamaterials are synthetic composite materials with a structure such that they exhibit properties not usually found in natural materials. Or so the dictionary says. But what does that actually mean? So metamaterials is actually a term born here at DARPA in the Defense Sciences Office under a program run by Valerie Browning, who hired me and brought me to DARPA. The idea being that all materials that we have today are composed of small elements, let's say molecules or atoms, and it's the summation of their responses that leads to how glass looks or how a crystal operates. The idea that was born here in DSO is that if we could actually manufacture those small unit cells, such that they're so small that their responses could add up, could we define that response to be something that's not available in nature? How do we define a new material based on its sub-unit cell components and identify properties that are unachievable with current materials but lead to disruptive applications? And the unique aspect of the metamaterial is that much of what we see today is really in the field of electromagnetics, its interaction with electromagnetic waves. But it can be extended to acoustic waves, seismic waves, and even to the thermal properties. And so it's an exciting framework by which we can start to build new materials to the point where I now see everything as a metamaterial effectively. Speaking of seeing, if someone were to look through your program portfolio, they'll probably notice a unifying theme on finding new ways to create and use optics. But was that always your vision? The reason why I got interested in optics is because of how I came to DARPA. Soon after I finished my PhD, I was looking for jobs and there was a position open with Booz Allen Hamilton for a mid-optical scientist and I didn't know what it was for at the time. 
and only found out later on that it was actually to support a program manager in the defense sciences office to build a program that was using the idea of metamaterials and understanding how it could have an impact in the field of optical system design. I did not have an optics background whatsoever. I had a more fundamental light matter interaction background. But it was very helpful at the time because the program manager was an expert in optics and he had a team of CETAs and SMEs who were experts in optics. To clarify, CETA stands for Scientific Engineering and Technical Assistance Contractors, so support staff for DARPA who aren't government employees. And then SMEs are subject matter experts. The distinction isn't a hard line. We generally refer to individuals from other government agencies as SMEs, but CETAs are also certainly experts in the subject matters they focus on. It was a great opportunity for me to provide some expertise in the fundamentals of metamaterials and what could be achieved with these ideas, but also a crash course on optical system design, which I had not had before. And once I had the opportunity to learn that, I got hooked and kind of got very interested in understanding how I could improve my own understanding of optics, but then how do I take my understanding of electromagnetics and, and metamaterials and start to apply that more broadly across different imaging modalities and sensing modalities. And so it was a great time to join as a CETA because it was the genesis of a portfolio of programs that were looking at using metamaterials for different sensing modalities. This was the EXTREME program, which stands for Extreme Optics and Imaging, as well as the Nascent Light Matter and Interactions program, which is NLM. So the EXTREME program, can you tell us a little bit about that, why it was created, what it did? The Extreme program was put together in 2016. At the time, there were some academic reports showing that you could control the phase of incoming photons using extremely tiny nanostructures on the surface. And controlling phase is important because it's fundamental to being able to engineer the response of an optical surface. You can, for example, engineer that phase response to create holograms or deflect laser beams, or you could focus light like a lens. And so these lenses, or planar optics, actually scatter or diffract light rather than refracting light like normal lenses do. So how do these thin planar optics differ from cameras today, say like the camera in a cell phone? So if you look at a standard imaging system or camera system, you're always going to see multiple different lenses of different shapes and different materials. Usually the first lens is used to pull in a significant amount of light, and then you have what are called secondary optics, all the other lenses in the system. Those are used to correct the image, right? either geometric or chromatic aberrations. And, and it's the culmination of all of those that gets you the great crisp image that you want. It's the same exact reason why your camera still sticks out of your iPhone, because you need that many lenses in order to image. And while our electronics have benefited from significant advancements, our optics have not. So the idea of the planar optic is to say, if we do have the ability to tailor phase and amplitude of photons and pull them in, where is it going to have the most impact within an imaging system? I would argue that the first lens that's pulling in light is not much of a swap reduction, size, weight, and power. But if I can reduce the secondary optics for correction, there's a much more bang for our buck for swap reduction. And what we've learned through the Extreme program working with performers and with the government teams is that these meta-optics or planar optics are great for aberration correction. They are effectively a very highly spatially resolved phase mask that can be used to correct for these aberrations very efficiently at much lower swap. And so what we've shown in various trade studies is that with the incorporation of a planar optic, we can almost get 10x reduction in size, weight, and power for the same exact imaging performance. Or at the same swap, we can actually double the imaging performance and get more information from that same system, which is a unique trade space to have completely enabled by these technologies. The other thing to mention is that the optics that we've been developing 
one of the focus areas within the program is how you do actually manufacture these. With the advent of nanofabrication, as well as the CMOS industry, we are now starting to see the ability to manufacture these optics in the same exact foundries as chips. And so we are now catching onto the coattails of the CMOS industry such that we can actually start benefiting from the scale as well as on the far reduced cost because of that scale in optics, which has not been traditionally achievable with bulk optical systems today. Bulk optics usually require significant polishing and testing in order to actually ensure that they can get integrated into a system. We don't have to necessarily go through that if we now move to a planar optic, which is entirely written with a very specific pattern that can be mass produced in the same line and foundry line as chips. And so the program really was about getting the metamaterials community and the standard optical design community to talk for the first time. And I have to say, it has been wildly successful at doing that. Speaking of different communities, you had a pretty rare experience between your time as a CETA and when you came back as a PM, right? An external partner actually came to DARPA saying that they wanted to provide additional funding to explore this idea of planar optics further, the idea that metamaterials could be used for really compact optics. And this was the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. We've published several press releases on our interactions with them, and certainly it's through that interaction that's led to significant and rapid transition of these technologies. Through that interaction between NGA and DARPA opened up an opportunity for me to go to NGA and run a program that effectively was taking some of the ideas from extreme transitioning them over to the intelligence community and, and scaling them up to meet those challenges. So in 2019, I moved to NGA as a program manager, working hand in hand with DARPA. And within a period of eight to nine months, had the opportunity to actually come back and interview again to be a DARPA program manager and come back to DSO as a PM and actually inherit many of the programs I'd helped create. It's a unique opportunity because PMs almost never get the opportunity to see the beginning of a program out to the end of the program. And so having been CETA, followed by transition partner, followed by PM, gave me the unique opportunity to, to go from, you know, crafting the BAA all the way out to closing out a program and being there for the entire story. After seeing the success of the program moving forward, helping to then identify where we could apply those ideas with specific DOD challenges and identifying different off-ramps that could come about from the program at the very end. And so that has successfully now led to a transition of the program to AFRL, AFRL is the Air Force Research Laboratory. Where we have now seen integration of such technologies into some gimbal systems. And have also seen the start of new programs of record at AFRL uh, based on this idea. We've seen the creation of several startups that are now being very successful in partnering with large foundries and seeing the culmination and almost the precipice of true deployment of these technologies at scale in the commercial side. And so seeing all that come out at the very end of the program has been extremely promising. And it's also fueled and led to the creation of several other programs here at DARPA as well. Like you mentioned, you helped craft Extreme as a CETA and then inherited it when you came on as a program manager. Now that you were back here in more of the driver's seat as a PM, what were you looking to explore? What technologies? What capabilities? When I actually interviewed for DARPA, there were a couple of different programs that I had pitched. The first of which was what I call Envision or Enhanced Night Vision and Eyeglass Form Factors. It is very much building off of what we did under Extreme, the idea that there are new technologies out there that can disrupt our ability to see. But also, our ability to see in the infrared can be greatly enhanced by some of the advances in semiconductor materials that have been progressing over the last few years. One of the problems I wanted to look at was night vision systems are critical enabling technologies for our warfighters, giving them enhanced visual acuity and low light illuminated scenes. This is the greatest technology that has provided our warfighters with an advantage to own the night. 
But the systems that we have today are really no different than what has been developed over the past few decades. And the reason is because the image intensifier, which is the core unit that allows us to convert infrared photons to visible photons and allows people to see, is really a hallmark device. However, we also know that these systems, because of how bulky they are and how heavy they are, puts a significant amount of torque on the user. If you look at a standard binocular night vision system today, it weighs about a kilogram. So imagine you're wearing a baseball cap with a kilogram weight hanging on the end of the bill as you maneuver through difficult environments. That weight pulls down on your neck and that strain that's imposed on you during these agile maneuvers has been shown to lead to chronic neck injury over extended use and which in fact can be more severe for aircrew members that wear these systems while experiencing and navigating hygiene maneuvers. Now this is the case for standard binoculars that are limited in field of view, so it looks like you're looking through a soda straw, as well as limited in bandwidth that greatly limits situational awareness of the field and limits the amount of information you get of the environment. Now systems have been designed that can overcome these limitations in field of view and bandwidth, but have been developed only by adding additional optical channels to the system. So imagine going from a standard binocular to now a system that has four tubes attached to your headset. This certainly adds capability, but at a cost of more weight that further exacerbates this issue of neck torque. And so one could say that we've perhaps started to reach a limit to what we can achieve in a standard binocular form factor with traditional refractive optics and image intensifiers. And so the question that was keeping me up at night is, when we have technologies like planar optics that can very clearly reduce swap of systems and perhaps even improve performance, why could they not be integrated into a night vision system that could simultaneously give our warfighters enhanced visual acuity, but improve their agility, improve their health, improve their effectiveness and lethality, all within a headborne system that's very compact. It's also the hardest problem to go after because these planar optics, they work off of scattering of light. And what that means is that you could have degraded contrast. You're essentially putting more haze into the system. But you don't have the ability to digitally correct the image in a night vision system. You have to show pristine imagery to the user. And so if anything, the night vision system with the requirement for direct view, pristine imaging, as well as a very clear requirement for a headborne mass, is likely the hardest challenge to go after from a new optics perspective or a new technologies perspective. And so it was very exciting to go after that problem, both from the perspective of what new technologies could be used to build a new night vision system, but also on a more fundamental side, are there entirely new ways that we could actually see in the infrared, even without a night vision system? Are there methods like upconversion, where we can directly upconvert from the infrared to the visible, where we could perhaps invent entirely new ways to see in the infrared that have not been fully vetted before? And so with Envision, what are you seeing now? How far along is that program? We are about two years into Envision now. It's been exciting working with a group of performers who have never been in the night vision industry beforehand and bringing in some very disruptive ideas. Whenever I put programs together, as all program managers do, we're looking for you know, near-term transitions and off-ramps that could come about from the program, as well as setting the seeds for long-term impacts and, and disruption. And so one of the near-term impacts that we are seeing is taking some of the technologies that we have, such as planar optics, and building things like retrofits for current systems. We've actually engaged and found significant interest with transition partners we're hoping to work with over the next few years and connecting our performers with them to start seeing the results and culmination of, of what comes from those off-ramps over the next few years. How does that happen? How do you find those off-ramps? Engagement with transition partners happens throughout a program lifecycle, and all program managers have to do this in order to identify you know, where do our technologies go after we've developed them or who's going to be taking that baton afterwards to take it further and actually deploy them to end users. 
engaging with such transition partners is actually challenging. You know, finding the right people who have a tolerance for the risk that DARPA takes on. One of the great things that we have at DARPA is the cadre of, of liaison officers. There are different types of liaison officers here at DARPA. There are, of course, liaison officers for different services, but also liaison officers with different tenures who come in on rotations and service chief fellows as well. They come in with significant experience on critical capabilities as well as limitations on the field, as well as contacts and who we need to be in touch with, who could really be the right partners to take our technologies further. And so I cannot thank them enough, both for helping to pitch many of the programs that I put together, but also in finding the right transition partners and engaging with them and putting together agreements to take things further would not have been possible without their efforts. I want to deeply thank them for that. Envision isn't the only program you started as a PM. There's another called Coded Visibility that looks at things from a completely different perspective. The exact opposite of wanting to see is obviously wanting to degrade the visibility of somebody. And the way that we traditionally do that today is through the use of smoke. Smoke and obscurance are critical tools on the battlefield, much like night vision systems, but we use them to degrade our adversary's ability to see our forces, so that way we have freedom to maneuver. And one of the questions that I was trying to go after was, obscurance and smoke have a mind of their own. <laughs> Once you release them, we really are completely at the mercy of nature to see how they propagate within air. And so they are almost an independent partner on the field. And so one question that I was trying to get after was, is there a way that you could actually build cooperativity there? How do you build a cooperative obscurant? Are there knobs that you could use to control their performance? And to take it even a step further, is there a way that you could simultaneously control its performance as well as a sensor such that you have the ability to control your visibility through the obscurant, which only you would know? This has a lot of ifs and buts associated with it, as all initial ideas at DARPA do. But the great thing about building a DARPA program is to start off with a crazy question like this, but to slowly etch away at it and figure out what is the right question to ask the performer community that one could have an impact, but could also have very clear metrics associated with it that drives innovation towards a clear goal. And just to clarify that goal for coded visibility, the fundamental question is, how do I get asymmetry with an obscure? And so that's effectively what code visibility became. So the program was focused on how do you game an obscurant and the different processes that occur within an obscurant, such as absorption of photons or scattering of photons, how do you play with that in such a way that one side could have enhanced contrast or enhanced ability to see while simultaneously degrading the opposite side's ability to see back? Now, this ability to effectively get something like one-way vision through an obscurant may sound like magic, but in fact, there are some ideas sprinkled in the literature on how this could be achieved by playing with the processes known as absorption and scattering. At a high level, scattering is what occurs in fog, for example, where we see a significant amount of haze that degrades our ability to identify objects. Right, think about a foggy night and you're driving on the road. You see a bright light from oncoming traffic, and at first it's unclear whether it's a car with two headlights or a motorbike with a single headlight coming towards you. And it isn't until it gets closer that we are able to clearly identify the type of vehicle. Right, this is the impact of scattering. So the interesting insight is that adding a material that absorbs photons to the scattering medium can in fact help to see better. Those photons that have been scattered that contribute no information to me can be absorbed. And so I prioritize those photons that can give me actionable information about objects that may be in the scene. 
So optimally placing these absorbers and scatters on the field can in fact yield the asymmetric effect we're aiming to achieve in the code visibility program. And where does that program stand? Yeah, so the program is 18 months into its program life cycle. It was designed to have three phases, 18 months each. And, and like all programs, after each phase, we need to go up to leadership to justify that you know, the program needs to continue on. Now, success could mean very different things. Success in terms of a technology, really achieving what it was supposed to do, is great. But if we've done that, is it necessarily DARPA's job to continue to fund it? Or have we done enough to light the torch and show the way that others could actually chart and develop further. And so in the case of code of visibility, I'm excited to say that significant advancements were made, both with performers and with government teams. I think we've shown that there are capabilities there that need to be further investigated, but that we've shown enough at this point that it's time for others to now jump in and run with it and really drive those technologies towards very specific applications and scenarios where they could have disruptive impact. And then there's one more program in your portfolio, Accelerating Discovery of Tunable Optical Materials, or ATOM. This, again, continues on the thread of the metamaterial, which is to say that if we structure materials, we can get great properties. But at the end of the day, we do need to have materials to start with as well. And so this was a program really on materials discovery, and specifically materials discovery of what are called tunable optical materials. Much of the lenses and optics that we've been talking about so far are static meaning that they have certain lens function and they stay the same. But there are materials out there that can change their properties based on input of energy. Two of the classes that we know of today, for example, one is phase change materials. Now, we've all worked with these materials despite not perhaps knowing it. They're what constitute our CDs and DVDs, which we perhaps don't use as much anymore. A laser is used to essentially modulate the material that allows us to write and read out bits of information. Another one is liquid crystals, which of course is used in all of our monitors and displays. That's achieved through the rotation of molecules that leads to a change in the color or the transmission of these materials. Now those materials could be used to actually build optics where you could start thinking about tunability or tunable function, such as being able to get zoom lenses with absolutely no moving parts. You see the Wimbledon and and sporting events where you see these large telephoto lenses that they're holding like a large system. And that's because of the large zoom function that they require. But the reason why they're so large is because those lenses have to be physically moved closer and away from each other. If you could replace that with a lens that just changes its function based on input energy, could lead to drastic reductions in size, weight, and power. But it goes further beyond that. The ability to change the optical properties of a lens or even an element could apply to imaging through obscurance, imaging through turbulence, could even apply to integrated photonic circuits where the use of changing the property of a material could allow for modulation of light on chip, for example, even for detection. And so the ability to have changeable refractive index or changeable properties of a material is critical. The problem is the materials that we have today are limited in terms of the refractive index change they can get, in terms of the speed they could achieve, and the kind of loss they may sustain or the amount of absorption they have. And so this program is really about pushing the needle and leveraging a lot of the tools that we now have for adaptive materials discovery that have been used in the area of pharmaceuticals and energetics, for example, but now pulling them into the field of optical materials and saying, how do we use these to identify new materials that could allow for large refractive index changes at very high speeds across the visible and infrared ranges that could have very low loss and have direct applicability to optic and photonic technologies that are of relevance to the DoD. 
Any final thoughts before we sign off? The story I told about Code of Visibility, about how this started with an initial question that I didn't even know if is physically possible, is likely a very common story across program managers, but is rather uncommon in the sense that this is not the kind of process you could do anywhere else. And so if you have an affinity and inkling to put in the hard work to figure out what is the right question to ask and allow others who could be out in the academic community, industry, commercial industry, or even in the government to come to you with answers, then DARPA may be the perfect place for you. I have not seen any other place like DARPA where you have the ability and autonomy to think about these questions. But at the same time, the thoroughness and the clarity and the depth to which program managers go to ensure that that question is the right question to ask, supported by CEDAs and SMEs, is really a terrific process to ensure that we are constantly pushing the needle for fundamental breakthrough in, in disruptive technologies. That's all for this episode of Voices from DARPA. Thanks to Dr. Rohit Chandrasekhar for joining us on this episode. For more information on any of the programs we discussed today, you can find links in the show notes. And as always, you can visit DARPA.mil. Thanks for listening.